Here we go. It says this in verse 35. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over. Somebody say crossover. Come on, say it with your chest. Somebody say crossover. I should have preached this verse in our crossover series last month, but I missed it. So we're going to preach it now. Crossover to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him, being Jesus, along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat and that it was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a pillow. Questions I ask my Bible. Where did Jesus get the pillow from? Like, I mean, it was a fisher boat. It wasn't like a cruising yacht. It was a fisher's boat. I doubt a fisherman would have a pillow in their boat. I think Jesus brought his own pillow. This is one of those BYOP, bring your own pillow. <laughs> so he was asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said, listen to this, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They didn't say, Jesus, can you do something about my storm? They said, Jesus, why don't you care about me? What is it about the trials of life that cause us to question the motives of God? That all of a sudden, because they said the big C word, cancer, because there's a discussion of divorce or job loss or whatever, we don't go to God, can you do something? God, don't you care? Since then he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, this is the Baltimore Jesus, why you scurred? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no words you don't want to hear from Jesus? You have no faith. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father God, we're grateful. We're thankful that we have built our life, God, on your unchanging hand. And we know who you are. You are the God that at one word, waves are calm. At one word, winds are still. At one word, there's peace all around. Father God, we pray that you would speak a word over us in this moment. A word that won't just encourage or inspire but will shift atmospheres and change the trajectory of our lives. God, have your way. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Somebody shout amen. Come on, Columbia, somebody shout amen. We are in week four of a series called Savage Savior. Savage Savior, by the way, quick commercial break. Next week, we are starting a brand new series called Blueprint. Somebody say Blueprint. We're going to be talking about what God is building here at Union Church. And quite bluntly, we're going to spend the next five weeks saying, what will I get out of Union Church? 
If I call this place my home, if this is the place where I decide that I'm going to bring my family, how is God going to build my life through this church? I encourage you, invite like 15,000 people. Do not miss next week as we unpack what God is building here. But today, we're concluding this series called Savage Savior, Savage Savior. And the whole idea of this series is that the God that we serve is not a passive God. I know I'm half a second into this message, but can somebody say amen? He is not a weak God. He is not a conflict-adverse God. He is not a timid God. He is a God that is aggressive. He is a God that is on the offense. He is a God that is all-powerful and has purpose in everything that he does. The problem is, first and foremost, most people don't understand that God is not a passive God, that he's aggressive God. But after we get the revelation that he's an aggressive God, the next problem is that many of us have a religious mindset of God and not a biblical mindset of God. And because we have a religious mindset of God, we understand that he's aggressive, but we're confused and we think that aggression is against us. We think that the aggression of God is an aggression against us because we're not perfect. And there's this God that walks around with this big stick in his hand waiting for us to mess up, waiting for us to make mistakes. And then, boom, blown tire. That's what you get because you're a sinner. Not understanding that God is not aggressive against you. God is aggressive for you. Matter of fact, his aggression is not against you. It is against anything that can keep you from fulfilling the purpose and the plan that he has for your life. The reason why God hates sin is because sin hates you. Sin kills your confidence. Sin kills your self-esteem. Sin kills your vision for your future. God's not against you. God's against anything that can keep you from walking in the fullness of who he called you to be. It was this confusion that called the nation of Israel to avoid God. See, in the book of Exodus, God came after they came out of Egypt, and he said, hey, come meet me on this top of the mountain. I want to meet with you face to face. From the Garden of Eden to Revelation, God had had one plan, to be with you face to face. But here's what happened when they got to the mountain. The power of God was on that mountain, and it began to shake, and and there was a cloud on the mountain, and there was fire on the mountain, and the nation of Israel said, oh, no, we ain't going up there. That looks scary. That looks like an angry God. Moses, you go up, and if you live to tell about it, then we'll hear what you have to say. They were confused. They saw the power of God, but they thought the power of God was against them, not for them. This is not my message, but I'm having fun preaching a message. ain't got nothing to do with today. Fast forward in their story. When they get to the promise that God had for them, they did not have the courage to overcome the giants in front of them because they had not had an encounter with the savage Savior, the power of God that was for them. Hear me. If you are confused and you think God is against you, you'll never have the courage to step into the purpose that he has for you. He is a savage Savior, but not against you, but for you. Today, as we conclude this series, I want to preach a message called, Teach Me How to Sleep. Teach Me How to Sleep. I've discovered in my 34 years of long life that uh, there's certain things that you just do not play with. There's certain things that you don't joke about. There are certain things that are not a game. Uh, Jesus is one of those things that you don't play with. The Bible says that he is the chief cornerstone, that he is the anchor of our life, that he is the one that we are to build our lives upon. You don't play with Jesus. Somebody say amen. 
As a Baltimore boy, I've discovered another thing you don't play with is you don't play with Old Bay seasoning. Old Bay seasoning is not something to be played with. Old Bay seasoning is not child's play. It is not a substitute for salt. You don't just throw it on anything just because it's bland. Old Bay seasoning is to be covered. Old Bay seasoning is to be cared for. Old Bay seasoning is... It is of God. Uh, you out in Howard County, y'all might not quite understand this, but the Baltimore County location, you know what I'm talking about. I'm all the way sidetracked. You ever had some crabs at your house and you invited somebody over who ain't from around her? And they asked that dumb question, what do I do with this? The Bible says to be hospitable, but in my mind, I'm thinking what you do is you don't touch my crabs. That's what you don't do because you're going to leave meat on it. You don't know what to do. If you don't know what to, go get you some corn. Go get you some chicken wings or something like that. It's, it's, it's not to be played with. You don't play with Jesus. You don't play with Obey season. You don't play with crabs. And you don't play with sleep. Anybody in here understand the value of sleep? I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't properly value sleep before I had children. I, I remember back in college when I would take sleep for granted. I would act like I could have it or I could not have it. It was no big deal. I, I've always been a connoisseur of sleep, though. I'm one of those people I could sleep in environments where most people can't sleep in. I can sleep with my eyes open, and you can't tell that I'm sleeping, but I am sleeping. Some of you are doing it right now. Wake up, because God has a word for you. I was so bold with my sleep, I would sit on the front row of my economics class right in front of my professor's face. I would open the laptop just to the perfect angle. I would open my textbook. I would look down into my textbook, and 45 minutes later, the classroom would be empty. The TA is cleaning up, and I'm saying, I learned everything. I brought it in through osmosis. It's not until I had Zoe, my oldest, my four-year-old, that I realized that sleep is a commodity. That is not to be played with. Apparently, Jesus did not play with his sleep either. Because after preaching for an entire day, he brought his own pillow, got into this boat, curled up in the hull of the boat, and, and went to sleep. It would make sense that Jesus was sleeping at the beginning of this journey. It was night. He had preached all day long. He was exhausted. And as they began on this journey, sleep made sense. But as the winds began to whip down over the mountains into the Sea of Galilee, me and my wife in 2017 actually went to Israel, and we were on a boat in this sea, and it was mind-blowing to see this immense water that was so large you could not see one shore from the other. And as we sat there and as we worshiped in 2017, we looked around and it was surrounded by mountains and all of a sudden the storm made sense. The wind would whip down over that mountain, come down and bring up waves 12 and 13 feet high. These fishermen, they were in this boat. These were fishermen. Somebody say fishermen. Here's what fishermen mean. It means they were on water more than they were on land. It means that the boat was their comfort zone. The boat was their home. The boat was the area that they were used to. There's something messed up when your comfort zone is rocked. It's one thing when, when there's drama at work and you can leave it and you can come home. 
It's one thing when there's an issue with a relationship that's not in your home. We can deal with each other whenever. It's a completely different story when the place where you call home or the place where you find your comfort is rocked. These waves are crashing. The Bible says that water was already filling the boat, and yet Jesus was asleep. How do you sleep in a storm? How do you sleep when the doctor says that big C word, cancer? Then adds words onto it like stage three or stage, how do you sleep in a storm? How do you sleep when your spouse says, I don't know if this is going to work out. Maybe we should go our separate ways. How do you sleep when the doctor says we're not quite sure what's wrong with your child? We have to run more. How do you sleep in a storm? Here's my question. Here's my prayer. Here's my request. Jesus, can you teach me? Can you teach me how to sleep? I, I don't know how you are at Columbia or Baltimore, maybe you're watching online. I, I, I don't want to say that I'm prideful because uh, that sounds really bad as a pastor. And uh, I, I'll find a better way to say I'm, I'm committed. I, I'm driven. I, I'm aggressive. I'm kind of just a go-getter. So because of that, if you ask me how I'm doing, I will always say I'm fine. It doesn't matter if my cat just died and I don't have a cat because Christians don't have cats, but that's a different story for a different day. Woo! All right, let's go over here. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. Anybody else like that? You just, you have a high tolerance for pain. You, you just have your game face on. You have the mindset of it makes no sense to cry over spilt milk. If there's drama, I might as well deal with it. So you just kind of move forward no matter how painful it is. For me... It's not even that I'm lying when I say that I'm okay. It's that I really think I am okay. It's not until I wake up in the morning and I realize I'm exhausted. You ever been there? You, you, you went to bed. You closed your eyes. You laid there for at least five hours, maybe even seven or eight. You wake up exhausted. Not one day, but two days and three days and four days. And it's in that moment that I realize I'm not really sleeping. I'm just fixing problems with my eyes closed. I'm tossing and I'm turning and I'm trying to figure a way out of this storm, trying to figure a way out of this situation. And it's in that moment that I realize I'm not as much like Jesus as I want to be. Because somehow he's able to sleep in a storm. And I'm not. In Psalm 127, verse 2, just in case if we're not convicted enough, here's what Jesus said. He says, it is in vain for you to get up early. I keep on trying to teach Zoe that. It's in vain that you get up early. Stay in bed. It's in vain that you sit up late. Here, here's what, I love the poetry of Psalm. It says, or that you eat the bread of sorrows. I'll give you a solution, but can I convince you you have a problem first? Some of us, we just chew on our problems. It's just like we're literally digesting the drama in our life. The Bible says this for vain. Watch this. He says, for so he gives his beloved. Another translation says his children. God gives his children sleep. Can I mess with your head? 
one indication of your inheritance as a child of God is a good night's rest. Matter of fact, the Bible says when you fully understand your identity in God, you will sleep peacefully. We, we at our house, like I said, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And if you have a little church, you know bedtime is an entire ordeal. It is, I mean, it is a cat and mouse game of how long can I avoid going to sleep? And I am not really good at bedtime. My wife actually said, you know, you can put the kids to bed sometimes, but you just don't do it the right way. My wife's idea of a good time of putting the kids to bed is about a 45-minute journey in which you go up into the room and you pick out their school clothes for the next day. You brush each of their teeth individually, and then you give them back mouthwash, which they always swallow and never spit into the sink. So why would I give them mouthwash? And then you put them in the tub and you bathe them, but you don't just bathe them. You give them their boat and their shark and their, their scuba gear, and they splash and they get you wet and all this other good stuff. And then you lotion them down from head to toe and you put some Vicks on them, and then you put on their PJs, but they get to pick which PJs they want to wear and then they get to pick what book they want to read and about 45 minutes later they're still not in bed that's not how daddy puts the kids to bed when I put the kids to bed it takes about eight minutes flat don't worry about which PJs to put on daddy picked them already the same ones you wore yesterday you don't sweat that much you don't even weigh that much these are still clean the next day we don't need to brush your teeth because you don't have any teeth and you're going to lose those teeth so let's not even worry about all that slap some lotion on their face they are in bed eight minutes flat I have been fired from getting the kids ready for bed so my new duty is I'm the tuck in dad I don't get them ready for bed. I just tuck them in. She gets them ready. They're all ready. And they yell, Daddy, I'm ready for bed. And, and I'll come up usually three or four minutes after they yell, Daddy, I'm ready for bed. And almost every single time it happened last night, I walk into my two-year-old or three-year-old now Roman's room, and he's knocked out of sleep. Two minutes prior, he said, Daddy, I'm ready for bed. And he's gone. Dinosaurs on his head, leg off the bed. I mean, not, not just that good sleep. I looked at him last night with jealousy in my eyes. I said, Jesus, I wish I could sleep like a three-year-old whose daddy is taking care of all his problems. I wish I could look at the storm in front of me and sleep with a dinosaur on my face and my foot off the bed knowing that my daddy, Jesus, will you teach us? Teach us how to sleep. I want to give you just three quick thoughts, three quick thoughts that I've learned. This is how you can get some better sleep in God. The first thing is this. Don't lose sight of your starting point. If you're going to actually live, and this word sleep is literally just an analogy for living a life of peace and not stress and drama. If I'm going to learn to live a life of peace, I cannot forget my starting point. I can't forget where I came from. I can't forget what God has done in my life up to this moment. I know I tell a lot of stories. My wife and I uh, had one of those picture book uh, uh, honeymoons. Our honeymoon was one of those things we're just going to remember forever. It was about eight years ago. I said about because I can't remember, but it was a while ago. We went to Dominican Republic, and my wife was just absolutely amazing. She knew that I loved fishing, so she planned a deep-sea fishing trip on the third day of our, our marriage. 
Now, I love fishing, but please don't invite me to go fishing with you because I'm not very good at it. I call it fishing. What I actually do is I feed fish with the bait off my hook. Put bait on a hook. I throw it in the water. 20 minutes later, I pull out a clean hook. I put new bait on. I throw it back out, and we do that for the next 45 minutes or so. We were at an all-inclusive resort, and we woke up early in the morning because they had an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I didn't really believe it was all-you-can-eat, so I had to show up every day just to make sure. We had all the fruit. We had custom omelets. I mean, it was amazing. We got to the boat dock, and there were uh, four Brazilian gentlemen and a Canadian guy that we were sharing the charter with, and we were ready to go. We were going deep-sea fishing. I knew we were in trouble when our captain introduced himself, and he said, hi, my name is Coca-Cola. I said, say what? Now, he looked like Chad Ochocinco's twin. He said, my name is Coca-Cola. We're going to have a good time today. <laughs> we get into the boat, and I wasn't very observant. I'd been three days married. My eyes were locked on my bride, or at least that's what I'm going to say for this story. And we were ready to go. I should have paid attention to the fact that there was black smoke that was billowing out from under the boat. But I just thought, hey, maybe it's a diesel engine. Maybe this is normal. Maybe this is what it's supposed to be. We're on this boat. Music is playing. We're going deep sea fishing. We are having the time of our lives. About a mile out to sea, Coca-Cola turns the boat off. Or at least we thought he did. Until we hear, uh-oh. I said, what you mean, uh-oh? He said, the boat just turned off. I said, you didn't turn the boat off? He said, no, I didn't turn the boat off. We're not there yet. Next thing you know, we are dead in the water a mile offshore. Coca-Cola said, don't worry, I'll call for help. Uh-oh. What you mean, uh-oh? I don't have any cell phone reception this far out. Cool. They'll come get us. An hour, two hours, three hours. The waves start rocking four feet, five feet waves. My wife goes to the edge of the boat and donates her off omelet, trying to attract fish. We all laugh at her saying she doesn't have sea legs. About three hours later, we're all donating our omelet. And here's what Coca-Cola said, calm as a cucumber. He said, we're fine. He said, as long as you can see the shore, they can see us. And they'll come get us. As long as you can see the shore, they can see us. And they'll come and get us. Here's just a random thought. Sometimes we can get so far out to sea. So far out into a situation. So far away from what we thought things would be like that we forget the place where we started. Sometimes you can get so far into a marriage that you forget the moment that you stood in front of family, friends, and God and looked into each other's eyes and said to love and to cherish till death do us part. Sometimes you can get so far into a career that you can forget the things that God whispered into your heart as you started on that journey. Sometimes you can get so far into a transition in the season that you forget where you started. But here's the problem. Forgetting where you started will ensure panic and stress in the middle. 
You see, for the disciples, they forgot that it was just days prior that Jesus had come found them where they were and said, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the fig tree and I have called you, Peter and John. You're not going to be fishers of fish. You're going to be fishers of men. And if they had just remembered where they had started, they would realize that there is no way that Jesus went to find you there to leave you here. There is absolutely no way that Jesus covered you the way that he covered you, forgave you the way that he forgave you, healed you the way that he healed you, brought you out of that storm the way that he brought you out of that storm. There's no way Jesus would bring you out of a storm for you to die in the next storm. But for some reason, when we get into a season of stress, of transition, of storm, of drama, it wipes our memory of the fact that this isn't the first time Jesus has come through for me. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It says, here's where our confidence comes from. So I'm going to throw Stephen under the bus, and then you could just jump under there with me. One of the reasons why I struggle with sleep is because my confidence is in my intellect. My confidence is in my problem-solving ability. My confidence is in who's my phone and who can I call for help. But if our confidence was in God, we would realize that he's the one that started us on this journey in the first place. It wasn't our good looks that got us married together. It wasn't the way that I sweet-talked you or had good words. It was that this was ordained by God, blessed by God, conceived by God, launched by God. Once such, it will be sustained by God. There's this passage in the Bible where Jesus is getting his disciples ready for the crucifixion. And it says that Jesus took off his rabbi robe, took a towel, tied it around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. If you're just wondering what Union Church is, Union Church is not a feet-washing church. I ain't washing none of y'all feet. I pray for you, but I ain't, I ain't scrubbing your toes. I it's not my calling. It's not my anointing. It's not how we do things. <laughs> the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You got to understand, these were crusty feet. Not like in 2021 where you got sneakers on and you walk on paved road. No, everybody wore Jesus sandals back then. All they had was dirt roads. And they did not have pedicures. Here's Jesus the creator of the world, washing feet. I'm like, Jesus, how in the world could you bring yourself to do that? He said, here's how in John 13, 3, it says this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Here it is. And that he had come from God and was going to God rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself, and the next verse says, he went to get to washing the feet of the disciples. It wasn't that he was so humble that he washed feet. It was that he knew where he came from. 
He knew who his father was and that his father had already provided everything that he needed. And because he knew what his starting point was, he knew that there was no situation that he walked in that was devaluing who he was. Hear me, if we forget the fact that it is God Almighty that started me on this journey, we're not going to have confidence that he's going to get us through. Psalm 23, 4 says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He said, hey, I could go through a storm and not be afraid. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They, I love the Bible. I just don't agree with it. Because it has weird verses like Psalm 23, 4, where it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I don't know where the psalmist grew up, but where I grew up, a rod and a staff was the least bit comforting. There, there was nothing comforting when dad said, go grab my rod or go grab my staff. It was not a moment to celebrate. It was, I'm walking into the valley of the shadow of death. Anybody grew up in a house like that? Ain't no comfort in a rod or a staff. <laughs> But I learned later on the reason why the psalmist said that his rod and his staff brought comfort into his life because that was the time in history where men were men. <laughs> this pastor is shady. Yes, he is. That was back in the time when men didn't write in journals. They didn't write their feelings in a book and say this is... <laughs> they would etch memories in their staff. A shepherd's staff was actually a shepherd's journal. And what he would do is every time he had a monumental moment in his life, he would grab his knife and he would etch a symbol in the staff to remind him of that moment. So if you were to look at David's staff, you would see Simba on David's staff. The day that David killed that lion, he would just etch it on that staff and say, look what God has done in my life. The day that David killed the bear, I'd imagine he etched a bear on that staff. The day that he killed Goliath, I imagine he etched a symbol. So when David said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What he was saying is every time I grab this rod and I begin to look at the different times that God has come through for me, I begin to look at the time that I lost my job and God got me one that paid more. I begin to look at the time when the doctor said they thought it was this, but when they looked a second time, it wasn't what they thought it was. I begin to look at the time when those people walked out of my life and I thought that I'd never find people like that again, but yet God has brought a closer circle that is moving me towards the purpose and the plan and the destiny that God has for me, your rod and your staff, these memories of how good you've been to me, they bring comfort to me. If you find yourself in the midst of a storm, get your eyes off the storm and bring out your journal and remind yourself that when you were broken, he healed you. When you were depressed, he put joy in your heart. When you had no vision, he put vision in front of you. When you had no direction, he ordered your step. He said, this is the way, walk ye in it. If you're not quite sure what the future is going to look like, look back at the past and realize that we serve a God that is faithful. He cannot fail. He cannot lie. He cannot abandon us. And if it's not good now, he's just not done because he said all things work together for my good according. Somebody say, I can't die here. I can't drown here. It doesn't end this way. 
Don't lose sight of where you started. Don't lose sight of your destination. That's the second thought. Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, let's cross over. Hear me. He didn't say, let's start the journey. He didn't say, let's embark and see what happens. He said, let's cross over. Can I give you some good news and bad news about God? There is bad news, but I'll give you the good news first. Here's the good news, Columbia, that he's not like man, he cannot lie. So if he said all things work together for your good according to his purpose, all things work together for good according to his purpose. If he said let's cross over, you will make it to the other side. You ready for the bad news? He intentionally leaves out the details. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What about the middle? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just trust me, you're going to make it. Anybody you like the details? It would help if you got the details. God, if you could just, can I tell you why he doesn't give you the details? Because if you had the details, you wouldn't go. Let me just preach it straight. Storms build anointings. Storms build faith. Storms build your tenacity. Storms build your trust in God. You need storms to maximize all that God has placed inside of you. But if you saw the storm coming, you would say, it's like when I take my dog out to, to go to the potty, but it's raining outside. We open the door, puppy sees it rain. Nope, nope, nope. I, I, this house is just good enough for me. I don't need to go out there. If God showed us the drama that we have to go through to have the marriage that he's ordained for us, the kids that he's ordained for, the church that he's ordained for, we would say, oh, no, I'm good here. That's why he tells you the beginning and the end, and he says, just trust me in the middle. Can I encourage you a little bit more? On the other side of every storm, you will always say it was worth it. Here is what you will always say on the other side of a storm. A, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. There's actually three. B, I don't ever want to go through that again. C, it was worth it. If that brought me here while I hated that, I'm grateful to be here. He said, let's go over to the other side. What's on the other side? I'm glad you asked. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, it says this. When they had come to the other side, to the country of the Jerusalem, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Here's what I know, that Jesus saw those men in bondage before he got into the boat. That he wasn't just crossing over because he wanted to take a night's rest and then work on the other side. He was crossing over because he knew that his job for the day was not done. That there were men on the other side that were waiting on a touch from Jesus. Not only that, the Bible says that these men were so demonized that they were controlling the entire shore. Nobody else could cross over because they were inflicting pain and violence on them. Jesus said, I have to get over there because there's people who need freedom and there's a shore that needs to be cleared of the enemy so that everybody else can cross. If only you understood that there's someone waiting for you on the other side of your storm. Oh, how do storms turn us into being selfish? 
How do storms just put us in a situation where we can only see our own selves and our own problems and our only situation, not realizing that the storm is not just about me because if it was just about me, I could turn back and go back because I was just fine on the other side, not understanding that my children's children are counting on me getting through this storm so that they never have to face this storm a day in their life, that my friends and family that I grew up with that don't know the hope and the freedom that I found in Jesus are counting on me. If only you knew that you can't surrender to depression because there's people that are battling depression right now that are counting on you getting through this storm so that you can hope and find healing and find freedom. If you don't know my story, you're going to hear it a million times over the next 30 years. The greatest storm that I've ever been through in my life is when my mom was diagnosed with cancer. The doctor gave her four months to live because Jehovah Rapha is still a healer. She lived for another 15 years. You can't tell me that my God's not a healer. Every single time I mention about going through that storm, about how God guarded my heart and guarded my mind, how I did not lose my salvation even though I had experienced the greatest loss in my life. I cannot tell you how DMs and text messages and conversations in the lobby and after church, yeah, I'm so glad I'm, I just lost a loved one. I, just, I was just getting ready to give up on God. I, I, I was. Your storm has purpose. Because when you make it through, there is somebody that is tormented by the enemy that is waiting to hear what God has done in your life. And your story of overcoming is going to bring hope and bring freedom. You can't die here. Because there's someone that's waiting on the other side. By the way. One of the reasons why we bug out in a storm is because we forget that Jesus is in the boat. Like, I, you know, it's easy to make fun of the disciples because we get to read the story, and I will continue to make fun of them as long as y'all protect me when we get to heaven. But I want to say to the disciples, how slow can you be? Did you not read the Bible? And they're going to say, no, we didn't. We were the Bible. You got a point there. But the Bible did not say that Jesus was the lamb that drowned before the beginning of time. It did not say that Jesus was the lamb that drowned for the sin of the world. It says that he was slain, that he hung on a cross so that we could find freedom. This isn't how Jesus' story was going to end. And because Jesus' story wasn't going to end that way and Jesus was in the boat, their story wasn't going to end that way. Oh, if only we were convinced that Jesus was in our marriage. And because Jesus' story doesn't end this way, my marriage doesn't end this way. If only we understood that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and because Jesus is in this temple, it doesn't end with cancer, it doesn't end with diabetes, it doesn't end with pneumonia. This is not how it ends because of who is on board. The last thing is this, write this down, go ahead and play. We're going to land this plane. Don't lose sight of your starting point. Don't lose sight of your destination. And then speak to the storm and look to your Savior. Like I said, I ask my Bible questions. And I would encourage you, read your Bible. Somebody say amen. Sunday message is not enough. Somebody say amen. You got to build your own faith. Let's just park out here. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Amen. 
everything in the Bible is true. Somebody say amen. But not everything in the Bible is to be accepted. Because if you just accept it as is without questioning it, you're going to miss the revelation that God's trying to show you. Here's the question that I ask of my Bible. What were the disciples supposed to do? We knew what they were not supposed to do. They were not supposed to freak out and say, Jesus, you don't care. Wrong answer. But what were they supposed to do? I actually don't think they were supposed to sleep. Just common sense. It's everybody sleep, and it's a storm. Y'all going to drown. Now, we know Jesus ain't going to die because he got to die on the cross, but we don't know about the rest of y'all. So I'm pretty sure sleep was not what they were supposed to do. So I'm literally reading this passage. I'm saying, Holy Spirit, what was your expectation of the disciples? What were they, what am I supposed to do in a storm? This is just what the Holy Spirit gave me. I feel like he said, Stephen, what did I do when I woke up? I was like, well, you woke up. And you spoke to that storm. And you said, peace be unto you. And here's what the Holy Spirit said to me. As I was, so are you on this earth. Greater things will you do because I've gone to my Father and I've given you my authority. What if Jesus was waiting on the disciples to speak to the storm? What if Jesus expects us by faith not to sit around and wait for him to intervene, but to realize that all authority has been given to us? And that when I open my mouth and speak by faith, that heaven responds, that angels are dispatched, that the Father looks at the Son and says, one of our children who understands who they are in me has opened up their mouth and it is my job to make sure that not one word they've spoken shall return void. And because they woke Jesus up, their faith was built that Jesus could quiet storms, but their faith was never built that they had the power to quiet storms. Mark eleven twenty three. 23, surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says, not those things ah, that he begs God to do, those things that he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. I wish I had some Christians at Union Church that were bold enough to start speaking to your storm, that you understood that the power of Almighty God is accessible to you. And when you speak to cancer, when you speak to pneumonia, when you speak to diabetes, that it must bow to the name of Jesus. Why? Because it has a name. And anything that has a name is under the the name of Jesus Christ, that you can speak not to your spouse, but to the spirit of contention that is in your home, and you can declare that this will be a house of peace, this will be a house of joy, this will be
will be a house of freedom that you can speak to your business and say that God is going to give me more than enough so that I can be generous on every single occasion. Come on, Columbia. Come on, Baltimore. Come on, BWI. I wish we were a church that started speaking to our neighborhoods and said suicide no longer has authority in this region. Depression no longer has authority in this region. Anxiety no longer has authority in this region because he has put the power of God in me. Here's the thing that I know and that you know. That's awkward. It's awkward to call things that are not as though they are. It's awkward to look at a storm and to say, peace. But it's only weird if it doesn't work. He said, if you would be bold enough to look at your situation, say it doesn't end this way. No, 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 no. It's not how it's going to go down. This is not God's outcome for this. I decree and I declare my loved ones will love Jesus. My body will be whole. I will be provided for to the point where I can provide for people around me. And until it takes place, I will not accept anything else. Storms aren't there to destroy you. Storms are there to reveal who Jesus is and who you are in him. Speak to that storm. And watch him restore your peace. Hey, can I pray for you? Father God, we're grateful, we're thankful. That not only are you a God, that the winds and the waves and cancer and debt and pneumonia obey. But as children of Almighty God, you said that you've put your presence in us. You've given us the authority to do and to walk in who you were here on Right where you are, with your eyes closed and your head bowed, if you could pray this prayer with me, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Just give out a moment to make this time, to make this message personal to you. I believe in this moment, God is turning victims into victors. He's revealing that you are the head and not the tail. And that at your word, mountains move. The greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Here's the problem. If he's not in you, if he's not in your boat, that storm very well could take you out. There's a passage in scripture and another time where the disciples were in a boat in a storm and Jesus walked on the water this time. It says that Jesus began to walk past the boat until the disciples invited him in. I've discovered that Jesus is always in the vicinity, but he won't force himself into your life. He's waiting for you to invite him in. Maybe if you'd be honest, you'd say, Pastor, I've never invited Jesus into my life. I grew up in church, but I kept him on the outside. Maybe you didn't even realize that he wanted to be a part of your life. Well, he does. And today he's asking, will you let me in? Will you let me be your Lord and your Savior? If that's you, you say, Pastor, I can't say that Jesus is in my life. 
but I want him to be. Can you pray this prayer with me? Say, Lord Jesus, I don't just want you around me. I want you with me. I want you in my life. Thank you for dying on the cross so that all of my sin and mistakes can be erased. Today, I surrender. I ask that you would take all of me, be my Lord, be my Savior, and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on, church. Can you celebrate for every single person that just made the greatest decision ever?